there are other contexts in which a rabbi can say that. I would say rabbanim shouldn't go away and do Pesach programs because when you do, you're giving your hechsher to that and that you don't have to do. And, and look, some there are Pesach programs, there are Pesach programs. I know sometimes rabbis have worked hard, hard all year. Their wives work sometimes even harder. For some of them, it's a break. I, I understand that there are exceptions, but Biderach Klau, these programs are not actually necessary. If people didn't want to prepare for Pesach, they could spend a tiny fraction to bring in catered food, to hire help in their own houses, and it would cost a fraction. It would be not this show of ostentatiousness, and that would solve many problems, not all problems by any means. And that's a choice Rabbanim have. I, I don't think they have a choice not to perform weddings. You know, it, when it violates halacha, you can say, I won't perform a wedding if they're doing X, Y, and Z, but because it has 500 guests as opposed to 250 guests, that's a lot to ask of Rabbanim. I get that. There are other areas, but I think it'll be up to individuals. It'll be up to individuals to say, Dayenu. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. I know that the evidence is always anecdotal, but I can't help but accept that many of our Orthodox communities and even institutions have been caught up in a type of hyper-materialism that appears to be a violation of the directive to walk modestly with your God. Whether we're talking about extraordinarily lavish weddings or over-the-top Pesach programs or the race to beat the next summer camp with trips to ever more exotic locations— or even the clothes we wear. I think it's hard to deny that many of us are caught up in a trap of overemphasis on material goods and experiences. On the other hand, even saying this is problematic. First of all, isn't materialism in the eye of the beholder? What seems to me over the top might be de rigueur to somebody else. And what appears to be normal, modest spending to me might appear lavish to my neighbor. It's almost impossible to define, which means that my complaints might be unfounded and, simultaneously, those who actually do overspend on their lifestyle never have any reason to think that it violates Torah ideas. So suggesting that there is a problem will, perhaps correctly, lead to charges that I'm just a hypocrite. I mean, I've personally gone to Pesach programs. My daughter's wedding is next week, and we are not only inviting family members, which might be the most modest thing to do. Talking about this means, inevitably, that I'm pointing a finger at myself. Still, I don't think we can ignore it. Even if many of us are part of the problem, even if I'm part of the problem, even if we're all part of the problem, I'm sure that something has gone wrong. It's not an issue where we can point to a pusik and say, there, that's the isser, that's the prohibition, in clear terms with a specific identifiable dollar value. So you have the phenomenon of situations, vacations, programs, lifestyles that are mahadrin mina mahadrin, in all ways related to ritual, while their very existence and foundations violate fundamental Torah values. To learn more about this, I was honored to speak to Rabbi Dr. Jeremy Weeder, Rosh Yeshiva at Yeshiva University. We'll get to this discussion in just a moment. First, please subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum page on Facebook and join and participate in The Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. We have some fantastic discussions there, so check it out today. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, JCH merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. 
It's just a few dollars a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining the Jewish Coffee House team. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or record and relax and let us do the heavy lifting, JCH Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcast.com, that's jchpodcast.com, to learn more and to sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage your audience today. Rabbi Jeremy Weeder is a Rosh Yeshiva at the Rabbi Yitzchak Elchanan Theological Seminary of Yeshiva University, where he occupies the Joseph and Gwendolyn Strauss Chair in Talmud. He holds a BA from Yeshiva College, an MS from the Bernard Revel Graduate School of Jewish Studies, and a PhD from New York University in Hebrew and Judaic Studies, and was ordained at Ritz. He is a scholar in residence at Congregation Kilat Yishurun in Manhattan, where he delivers the Dr. William Major Memorial Advanced Shear in Talmud. Rabbi Jeremy Weeder, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. As a preliminary question, I'd like to know whether you agree with what I just told our listeners, that I think that there's a problem with materialism in certain segments and sectors of the Orthodox community. Is that actually a problem in your mind? The short answer to that question, I think, is yes. I think that it is complicated because I think there are many parts of the community that there is what I would say a struggle between, on the one hand, materialism, on the other hand, simply trying to survive. Just to take it by way of example, in YU, in Yeshiva College. So over the last number of years, the number of, number of male students who are pre-med majors who are planning on going to medical school has dropped dramatically. And relatively speaking, at least the enrollment in the business school, presumably in many cases with an eye towards finance or something like that, has grown. Why are students doing that? There is a perception, and I don't know that it's correct, but there is a perception that they won't be able to make it in our community if they're just doctors. If they're just doctors. Just doctors. Wow. And medicine, they say, isn't exact, isn't what it used to be. And I don't know if that's truly accurate, but is it perception? And I don't know that the students or some of the students who are opting for a career in business are doing so because they feel the need to have this luxurious life that they won't be able to afford as a doctor, but only if they work in finance. In some cases, it may be because, again, correctly or not, their perception is they're just not going to be able to hack it if they're a doctor. The question is, how much of that is materialism and how much of that is being realistic? Again, whether it's accurate or not. Um, but, but that said, uh, but that said, I think that clearly there is a serious problem in our community. I think it's true in almost every segment of the Orthodox community, um, this focus on materialism. Uh, I, I don't think that's a question. I, I can't speak to the situation at all in Israel, but in the United States, I think it's simply a reflection of being enmeshed and embedded uh, in a larger culture uh, where this is really central. If I had to describe four isms that define secular Western culture at this point in the United States, it might be narcissism or slightly more generously self-centeredism, if there was such a word, hedonism, consumerism, and exhibitionism. So when I speak about the last one, it's not enough that I consume and that I enjoy the pleasures of life, uh, but I also have to make sure that everybody else knows that I'm doing it. Uh, something which I think has always been true to some extent, but in the world of social media and brands, 
becomes ubiquitous. So I hmm. think that our community, the modern Orthodox community, I think it's become true. I, I don't live there, but what I'm told that Lakewood is not so different than what, what we're experiencing, let's say in Teaneck and the five towns. The overwhelming influence of Western culture is really putting a stamp on our community. And if I would just comment one thing about Western culture, a little over 20 years ago, after the events of 9-11, then President George W. Bush, when he spoke to the nation, basically told us to go and shop. And what he was telling us to do, really, he was telling us that we need to support our economy. And that's true. But the American economy is fundamentally a consumer-driven economy, consumption as opposed to production. And that, I think, has dominates the entire culture. And I think our community is fundamentally not any different than the rest of the culture around us. You actually highlighted two specific issues that are obviously related on some level. There's the emphasis on material goods. There's also the high cost of being an Orthodox Jew. And that comes out of that as well. Those can obviously mesh together, but they're two separate issues. We'll get to both of them. I want to ask about something you just mentioned now in terms of the four isms. Exhibitionism, you explain people want to show off how much money they have. Consumerism obviously has to do with the desire to buy things. Hedonism, the desire for pleasure. How does narcissism fit into that? When I make a choice as to how to live my life, that choice doesn't exist in a vacuum. If I choose to drive a certain car, if I choose to take a certain kind of vacation and share it with the world, that has an impact upon my neighbors. Well, it's my right to do so, but so why do you care? The answer is because it has an impact upon your life. If I am a individuals on a school board and I make decisions as to, assuming I'm in that position, I've never been in that position, but I'm one of the people who makes the decision on the tuition structure, on the kinds of things that will happen in the school, whether we have, we might say, a Cadillac school versus a, a Chevy school. So listen, that's what I want. I have the money, I'm going to contribute. But that has an enormous impact upon many other people in the community. So if my consumption were private and nobody else knew and had no impact, so I hear that is not being disrespectful or insensitive to other people's needs. But since that isn't the reality with which we live, my choices have an impact upon other people. And since America, probably more than any other United States, other than more than any other Western nation, is focused on the rights of the individual, it's much less communitarian than many countries, many democracies in Western Europe. So, you know, I get to do whatever I want as long as I'm not technically impinging upon your rights. But that really has an impact upon other people. Then that leads to another question I want to ask you. I think implicitly and inherently we all understand that materialism isn't a good thing. But can you point to some sources that would indicate that this is actually going against the Torah and for Torah Jews, this is not the right way to live? You just mentioned narcissism, the idea that I impact my community. So obviously that is something which is a Torah value. We have to be careful. But in general, there are specific sources that can point to the wrongness of the following statement. Look, it's my money. I can do what I want with it. I keep all of the mitzvot. I give more than my fair share of tzedakah. What's the problem? I can do what I want. So I would identify with materialism two kinds of problems. I'll call it the secondary problems. Uh, and then the the primary problems. I know that's a little bit you know backwards, but starting briefly with the, with the secondary problems, living in a materialistic society creates an enormous amount of desire. But aside from prohibitions of losach mode, it often leads to financial dishonesty. Uh, some people earn their money honestly, not always osik shalom, but it may be honestly. But other people feel pressure that they have to keep up, and some people unfortunately cross those lines. 
again, it's not inherent, but it's very commonly, you know, flows out of a materialistic society. Uh, I think the influence on mental health is not a small issue at all. Uh, as I'll talk about uh, the Pasuk in Kala says, oh, hey, Kesef, Leis, by Kesef. Um, there's never enough. It puts enormous pressure on other people. Um, it creates enormous dissatisfaction. Uh, it creates social divisions. Mishle, you know, tells us that uh, on the one hand, right? it creates social divides. On the one hand, I find this hard to believe. It's not my personal experience. Um, but, you know, some people don't want to be seen with other people because they're they're not cool enough in the sense of being wealthy enough. They don't want to associate with them. They don't want to be seen with them. Maybe it ruins their brand. It ruins their standing. So there are a lot of problems that emerge, practically speaking, from that. I, I would add one other one. And it, it, this is an extraordinarily difficult problem of raising children in the community when either you don't have the means or you choose not to spend on the kinds of things that other people are. So your child comes back from school and says, well, all the kids are going on vacation here or there. Where are we going? And of course you wanna to explain to your child that we have priorities, but that makes it very difficult. But those I would describe as, as all essentially being secondary problems. There is really sort of a more primary problem, which is the, the impact of materialism on, I'll use the term spiritualism. The two are essentially the opposite. We might say Gashmias versus Ruchnias. Moshe Rabbeinu warns us over and over and over again in the Torah, uh, four times in Sefer Dvar, the same message is and the outcome of material success, extraordinary material success, is that you forget God. That, that's what always happens. Four times, the same message is delivered over and over again. The Gemara in Yevamos, when it talks about the process of, I don't want to say interrogating, but perhaps discouraging a ger, you know, from joining the Jewish people. So one of the things that we say to the ger is, We can't handle extremes. We don't do too well with, with too much persecution, but we don't do so well with rov tova either. And the truth is, the Gemara there presents it in the context uh, of a ger. But if you look in the Gemara in Tainus, so the story is told about Choni HaMa'agel when he prays for rain, that God finally gives the rain, and now the rain is, when it's finally coming down the way it's supposed to be coming, but there's a lot of rain, and then they come and ask him, you know, we're in trouble, if the rain keeps coming, so he says, you know, bring me, uh, bring me the, the animal, we're going to bring the carbon, and he, he utters a prayer to God, and he says that Amcha Yisrael cannot handle Loberov Tova, the Loberov Peranus, and that's what he says. An overabundance of material goods is not a blessing because inevitably it corrupts us and it corrupts society. There are obviously individuals who are exceptions, um, but that really, really does a lot of damage. The Gemara Brachos says that, uh, that basically Moshe Rabbeinu blamed HaKadosh Baruch Hu for this week's parsha for the Egel, Vidizahav. He says, the Gemara, I think, is, uh, is early in the fifth parak in Brachos, and the Gemara says that the great multitude of gold and silver that you gave the Jewish people, it's your fault, God. You gave us all this, and they made an Egel. What do you expect? It's like the father who bathes and, and dresses his son and gives him food to eat and drink, and he's tola kish shel zahuvim bitzavaro, he puts the gold purse, umoshivu v'pesach shel zonos, mayasa ben well, how do you, you don't expect the child to sin? So it is almost inevitable. I think it's true in every society, every religious community, non-religious community, when people wind up with an overabundance of wealth, it's not a blessing because it drives out the spiritual, it drives out God. 
recently, I have been reading uh, a number of things connected. There was a podcast recently, I think it was in the Ezra Klein show, where David Brooks actually was a stand-in guest interviewer, and he interviewed, uh, I think it was Leon Cass. It was really an amazing, amazing interview talking about really what is a meaningful life. And even though neither of the individuals involved, both I think Jewish, neither observant, um, but it was a very, very listening to, to Leon Cast. It was a very religious experience to hear him talk talk about what he talks about with his students, um, and they make reference to a book that I've read a long time ago, but I picked up again recently, which was Viktor Frankl's, you know, Man's Search for Meaning. Again, Viktor Frankl was not uh, was not an observant Jew, but it is incredibly inspiring. It is incredibly spiritual, asking us really what are we looking for in life. And I would say the third piece of this most recently, it's the current issue of The Atlantic. Uh, Arthur Brooks published a piece about satisfaction. And what is clear is that people search, think, they, they, they reach for more material goods, for acquiring things, and it doesn't bring satisfaction. It brings a temporary, a temporary amount of enjoyment. And then you're back on the, uh, I'll call it the, the hedonic tre treadmill. You just need more and you need more. And that's not how you find real satisfaction in life. And I don't think it's hard to see that for most people who become incredibly wealthy, especially if they didn't work to get it that way, if they inherited it, it doesn't bring meaning in life. Uh, and I think that as Torah Jews, the, mo the most important thing we, we search for is a spiritually meaningful life. And materialism, again, and, and I should stress, there, there's no nobility. We don't regard poverty as, as being noble. Right. Um, you know, is not an ideal. It just means that if that's what your parnasa is, you still need to be immersed in the spiritual world. Um, but excess materialism, materialism generally drives out the spiritual. It's one. It seems to me that it's one or the other. Rabbi Weider, I want to ask you about something you just mentioned. It's almost a side point, but you talked about how Am Yisrael doesn't do well with excess problems or excess materialism or material goods. Do you think... Perhaps this is a religious question, but do you think that it's specifically a problem that's endemic to Klal Yisrael, a problem that we have that other societies may not have in the same way, something about our genetics, our spiritual DNA that makes us more susceptible to that? Or is this something which every community in the human family would have? I think this is, I think this is true for every community in the human family. I, I suspect, you know, for those who, are, who subscribe to Darwinian biology, not as a religion, but as a scientific explanation, we probably have good reasons that we strive for material goods, right? The goal, you know, some people like to be rich because, want, want to be rich because it brings, they enjoy things. And some people want to be rich because of acquisition of power. Some people want to have money or be rich just so they have security. They're not interested in the good things, but it means they're, they don't have to worry about it. Um, and there is, there's a lot to be said for being, I'll say, ethically independent. If you're not dependent upon others for Parnassah and you're not worried about your Parnassah, you have an opportunity. There's no guarantees, but you have an opportunity to be a principled person and not compromise. Right? I, I don't judge people who, who, who sometimes compromise, certainly in the gray areas, because of Doha Ka Parnassah. Um, but there is, it's good to be in, independent. You know, Moshe Rabbeinu, when he, when Yisro told them to choose the judges, he wanted Anshe Chayli, wanted people wealth because they wouldn't be beholden to anybody. They could judge with honesty and not be afraid of anybody and not need anybody. Um, so, uh, but I think that's a, a common human impulse. If you look around, and I, I don't know what it's like in Israel, but in the United States, there's a lot of that is dissatisfaction with, with our government because there's a sense that our government is bought and paid for. And this is true on the right and the left, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your political affiliations are. Um, and, and when I look at that, and I sometimes see what happens with people who are connected with wealth and what they do, 
and, and what I would term as oppression, it, it's very upsetting to me. And then as I happen to be learning Sefer Yeshaya right now and reminding myself, it's like, oh, nothing has actually changed. This has been the same thing all over. It's the same pattern in human history. It's the powerful, typically connected to wealth in one form or another, who use that you know, as an advantage to extract more wealth to, and that's how we wind up with the poor suffering. You read, you read the Nevi'im, you read Chazal, you can read anything in the contemporary world. It's the same story over and over. So in, in a very strange sense, it's less upsetting to me because I realize that nothing, nothing has changed, but nothing has changed. It's not uh, so worse now. It's, we're not any worse. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be striving to, you know, to bring a much better world. But I, but I think that that's a universal uh, human experience. I don't think that's anything, you know, spe- unique to the Jewish people. One of the most difficult things I find when discussing materialism in general is that it's not determined presumably by any objective standard. I can't say that amount of money or spending that amount on a vacation or going to a school with a tuition at that dollar level is the definition of excess and below that is okay. It's very, very hard to figure out what exactly is materialism. And of course, I point the finger at myself. I'm sure I can say that person is going overboard and someone's pointing at me and saying I'm going overboard. So how do we determine what is considered conspicuous excess, perhaps conspicuous is the key term because to cite Justice Potter Stewart, I know it when I see it. Is that how we decide what it is? Or is there any form of standard that we can use? I don't think there is a, you know, an, an exact way to know. There are really two ways, I think, to uh, approach this issue. One is from the communal approach and one is from the individual's approach. Uh, we don't have the luxury, certainly in the United States, we don't really have the capacity to approach this from a communal approach. When I say communal approach, I mean something like sumptuary laws, where the community would prohibit a spending on more than X on a wedding, inviting more than Y people to a wedding. I, I think it was about 20 years ago, I don't remember exactly, where there appeared something that was a movement, I think it was in Brooklyn, to try to limit the size of weddings, and a bunch of Rabbonim signed on it. The only problem was that there was a clause in there that allowed the right of making exceptions. Now, I, I, we all understood exactly what that meant. That meant that you could be this rabbi, but you had a few gvirim and they wanted to make a, a bigger wedding. So that you had to make an exception for it. And once you've done that, you know, we, 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 we're in a democratic, we are all egalitarian enough, even as Orthodox Jews, to understand why that doesn't fly. It doesn't matter what stripe <laughs> of Orthodox Jew you are. And, and so it really doesn't work. It doesn't work because we, we tend not to be, certainly in the modern Orthodox community, we're not so good at ostracizing other, other Jews uh, for violating certainly halachic norms and even communal norms. There are a few areas, but for the most part, not. So it's really hard to have these, these sumptuary laws. So that literally leaves it to the individual's judgment. And I, I guess every individual has to ask him or herself that when we make choices, when we buy things, when we choose vacations, why are we doing it? Is it really necessary? Does this advance our lives in a meaningful way? And I don't, I don't know that one can, you know, you, you mentioned, you, you use the term conspicuous. Um, and I think that actually plays a very important role, which is that if you want to consume and make sure nobody else knows about it, it's probably going to be A, less problematic, and B, you're most li- less likely to do it. And if, you're, if you can't share the pictures of your ski vacation, you know, in the, the, the newest resort in, I don't know, Utah or Denver with anybody else. And only you know about it. So look, if, if you're such an avid skier and you have such an appreciation for the, the nuances of this slope and that slope and this black diamond and that, great. You know, I'm not saying it's necessarily a wise choice, but some of that, some of that choice is driven by, I have to be on the newer thing, not because I'm such a ski maven, but because I need to sort of uh, position myself you know, uh, as being that kind of a person. 
So I think if it were less conspicuous, if it were less conspicuous, it would be less problematic. My, one of my one of my children once asked me, he, he knew that I wouldn't buy, even if I could afford it, I wouldn't buy a BMW. So he said, what if somebody gave it to you? So I said to him, you know, if we could sort of tip, rip off the logo, and that's what, because it'd be, be quite a chavaya driving it. So I said, if we could kind of eliminate the, uh, the hood ornament and nobody could tell it was a BMW, I would consider it. Um, but that is, now obviously I'm coming from a different vantage point. For me, it, it, in my business, it's not helpful showing, if, if you're wealthy or it's not helpful showing that off. So I'm not, I'm not saying to judge anybody else, but that was my perspective on it. I, if I could somehow afford it and I enjoyed it, I don't want people to see that. So if, you, if, if people only consume that way, there would be less materialism. That's a very good point. Are there any other ideas apart from the conspicuous nature of it? Because obviously you talked before about exhibitionism. So that's an example of exhibitionism, but still the narcissism, the idea of hedonism, to further your example, even if I somehow hide the fact that this car is a very expensive luxury vehicle, even if I can somehow hide the Rolls-Royce grill, I still know that it's a Rolls-Royce. I know that I'm driving a luxury car. I'm still probably violating some basic norm when it comes to these matters. I, I think I would in a strange way, take exception to the notion of, of the, the use of the term violating. Uh, sometimes it, we're asked the question of, you know, is there a halachic line here? What does this violate? And I think that that kind of a question, I, I understand it, it comes from a place of we are a halachic society. And if I can't find it in the Shulchan Aruch or the Mishnah Brewer, then maybe, maybe it's okay. But I think it kind of misses the point of Judaism. You know, to take an area that's uh, not, well, it is controversial, but not controversial in this context, playing ball on Shabbos, playing ball on Shabbos. So if you're going to play ball on Shabbos and you're wearing big day Shabbos and there's an Arab, so we can have a discussion as to whether, to what extent it violates in Tashivni Shabbos Faglecha. But very often what people say is, well, Rabbi, is it us or is it Mutam? And that kind of misses the whole point of Yahadus. Halacha has to be a bottom line. It's a, it's, it's a low, it's a minimum standard which everything has to pass. But the analogy I like to use is the trees and the forest. Halacha are the trees, but the Ramban's Kedoshim to you is the forest. What we're aiming for is the forest. The trees aren't so beautiful on their own. Some of them are, but we're looking for a broader picture. And this is true in every single area of life. It's in the way you keep Shabbos, but it's the why some, why some people struggle with what does it mean it's not Shabbistic. It's not always easy to give precise lines, but if you miss, if, if you keep all the Lamites Malachas and all the Shusim, but you miss Shabbos, you miss the, almost the whole point. If you talk about pleasures, whether it's sex or food or the way we speak, even things that may be mutter. So I check all the boxes that it's, I haven't violated this is or that is or the other is, sir. You've kind of missed the whole point of what it is to be a religious personality. So when, 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 you, when you ask the question, you know, does violation... If that's not a help, it is, it's important. It has, it can't violate anything. That's the sort of the bottom line, the way you start, you know, the most basic is it can't violate. But it's a minimal line. It's it's not the whole thing. That's the minimum. But, but that, that's hardly what we should be striving for. Our, our search for meaning in life is to, is to become the way the Orach HaShulchan puts it more like the Malachi Asharis and less like the Behemoths. And to simply just say, well, I checked all the boxes in Shulchan Aruch and I'm done. I think it misses the whole point. Rabbi Weider, I have to say that uh, you just basically walked into an entire huge conversation that I've been having with several people in my neighborhood, uh, wonderful people, and we've been discussing this exact issue. So I'm going to ask you at some point to come back and do a podcast on that as well, because to me, that is one of the most important issues in Yahadis today. So thank you for bringing that up and for correcting that term violation. I want to move on to something that we discussed earlier in terms of the cost of Orthodox life in general. And obviously, that's 
a problem, maybe a, a community problem, just a, a problem of, of institutions at times. But, you know, just talking about the price of Hagim, the price of day school tuition, it's very, very difficult. And as you said, people feel very often they have to earn a lot of money. In your example, they have to go into finance rather than going to the medical profession simply because they can't afford to be religious Jews or they're afraid of not being able to afford being religious Jews without having a very large salary. Apart from that being a problem on its own, it also can lead to a natural materialism. There's a small step from I need to earn a lot of money, like a lot of money, because I need to afford day school to I need to earn a lot of money because I need to earn a lot of money full stop. And that can be a problem as well. We all tend to see what we do as the most important thing, whatever is that we're into. So I think people may start out with very good intentions. And yes, yeshiva tuition is astronomical. It's a, it's a separate discussion. Uh, but just doing the arithmetic, it's, it's a very big problem. And once you go into those professions where you do earn that kind of money, at some point, you now you might have, not everybody has that, the excess money, now you do have to figure out what to do with it. And since earning money is what you do very well because you've chosen a particular profession, it, does, it can become an issue. And I don't think it's true for everybody, I think it's true for a lot of people. Let's talk about some possible solutions, perhaps on a case-by-case basis. You mentioned, as an example, weddings before. This is a very personal issue for me right now because my daughter is getting married in about 10 days. And we are not having a few family members and that's it. We're having a quote-unquote regular wedding. At the same time, in theory, I've said for a long time, I believe that if all of Kla Yisrael could get together, and you mentioned the difficulties of doing that once there are exceptions, but if we could all get together and somehow say, you know what, you invite Hassan and Kala's friends, you invite some very close, maybe immediate family, everybody else, please come for the chuppah and or the dancing. There'll be kiddush food and that's it. Not that that's so cheap, but it's certainly less than a full wedding meal. There's no need for them to bring a gift. That would be a wonderful thing, but it's very difficult to implement that sort of thing. What can really be done? Because I don't know if that's really practical. That's my dream solution. You know, it, you know, we say we oh, every one of us says the same thing. You know, I, I had perhaps the most amazing wedding I've ever attended. Came about forty-five minutes before the governor of New Jersey shut down the state at the beginning of the of the pandemic. I got a call from a friend whose niece was supposed to get married, and the wedding was supposed to be that Sunday. I think it was Motzei Shabbos, and the wedding. Uh, was supposed to originally been in a hall in New Jersey. Then it was moved to someone's backyard like the week before because it was clear you weren't going to do such a big thing. And now came the shutdown and no wedding was going to happen at all, but you, you had till nine o'clock. And I got this call probably 8.15 and, some, and, and the uncle said, can you do a wedding? It's like, what? I, in some ways, it was the most one of the most beautiful weddings I've ever attended. We went over to one of the apartment complexes in Teaneck. The people in the complex probably was more dangerous than we realized because nobody understood that COVID was transmitted not through touching, but through, you know, through mm-hmm. through breathing. Okay, but it was outside. It happened to be the couple was going to be living in those apartments. And the people in the complex, everybody got together. They brought it out. They turned the headlights of the cars on for lights. They put together quickly a chuppah. You know, we did it very, very quickly. It was beautiful. And that, that it was an amazing hustle and kala because instead of waiting, they decided they just wanted to be with each other. And that was more important to them than any kind of fancy meal. Now, I, I don't know that you have to be so spare, but 
you know, I can do a kiddushin for any couple they want. And, and the expenses that you need in terms of getting married, I can keep it under $100, you know, far <laughs> less than that. We can do it on the on the mall, you know, in YU, on the pedestrian mall. That's it. You don't need, you know, you tell your parents you want to elope or something like that. And the parents might not be so happy. But but really, we all say we all say that 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 we'd want to do this. And somehow we don't get together. But I wonder if it's going to take young people, really the young people getting married at some point to turn to us and say, you know what, I don't want that. We jokingly say, you know, if my child came to me and we were, if we were making a wedding in the United States, I would say, listen, I'll tell you what, I'll write you a check for most of the wedding expenses. So let's just put together a tiny chuppah and you keep the money. Be much better off that way. Everybody would be better off that way. But it's going to be up to enough individuals to say, we're not doing this. Now, I, I don't think, sometimes I think Rabbanim bear a responsibility for not doing things, but this is a really hard one. In my position, if I want, I could say, not my responsibility, it might be students of mine. Now, uh, I might be able to say, I won't attend the wedding if there's more than X people. It's hard for a Rav of a shul to do that when it's his Balabatim. There are other contexts in which a rabbi can say that. I would say Rabbanim shouldn't go away and do Pesach programs. Because when you do, you're giving your hechsher to that. And that you don't have to do. And, and look, some there are Pesach programs, there are Pesach programs. I know sometimes rabbis have worked hard, hard all year. Their wives work sometimes even harder. For some of them, it's a break. I, I understand that there are exceptions. But Bederach Klau, these programs are not actually necessary. If people didn't want to prepare for Pesach, they could spend a tiny fraction to bring in catered food, to hire help in their own houses, and it would cost a fraction. It would be not this show of ostentatiousness, and that would solve many problems, not all problems by any means. And that's a choice Rabbanim have. I, I don't think they have a choice not to perform weddings. You know, it, when it violates halacha, you can say, I won't perform a wedding if they're doing X, Y, and Z, but because it has 500 guests as opposed to 250 guests, that's a lot to ask of Rabbanim. I get that. There are other areas, but I think it'll be up to individuals. It'll be up to individuals to say, Then in that case, do you think that, perhaps I'm putting you on the spot here, but are Pesach programs somewhat, quote unquote, inherently a problem because they're inherently unnecessary? No one needs to go to a Pesach program where you can just hire a caterer, meaning even someone who can't clean the house by him or herself they can't hire someone to do it for less than the cost of a Pesach program. I mean, I, I think that the way the Pesach programs that I see advertised, I think are mostly unnecessary. There are, look, there are circumstances in which you have families that want to get together and they don't have the space in someone's house. And I, I don't know that this is maybe, maybe that maybe the answer is don't get together all for Pesach, do this, you know, some other occasion. There is some justification some of the time. I don't think that's most of what goes on. And it's like an arms race. You read in the newspaper, like this guest and this chazan and this mentalist. And it's, you know, we have a, a Jewish newspaper in our community. I think it now serves many communities. And it, it, it's worth more, I would say, if you're a Jewish sociologist, than actually just for informing yourself, just to read through it and look at the advertisements, not the news. It really does shed a certain amount of light on what's going on. And it, it's not in a positive way. Uh-huh. Okay. I want to ask you a question about Israel, and it really applies also to the United States. I know that you said you're not familiar with that issue when it comes to Israel, but still, a good friend of mine was talking to me over Shabbos. I told him that we were going to be having this talk, and he talked about how Israel was different 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, certainly even more than that. I've been here for 25 years, and the changes have been unbelievable. And a lot of those changes, I'm saying now, I think they're for the good. I remember getting off, I mean, obviously this isn't a personal consumption issue, but getting off the plane in the old Ben-Gurion Terminal 1, and it was messy, and it was a balagan, and it wasn't particularly pleasant. Some people loved that. I'd never liked it. To me, it was always like, oh boy. Terminal 3, which is beautiful. To me, it's a machai. It's 
wonderful to get off the plane and you feel, oh, Israel, it's, it's come so far. But what I'm actually celebrating is it's come so far in building up his economy. It's come so far in providing nice facilities. And you can extend that to the fact that the houses now are nicer than they used to be. The roads are better than they used to be. People's salaries are higher than they used to be. Are we supposed to bemoan the fact that once upon a time things were much more simple and innocent and people didn't care about money? Or is that form of, quote unquote, materialism a positive thing? I think it's a mixed bag. In some ways, I'm not sure when you talk about certain kinds of changes in society and the economy, it, 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 they're a reality. Uh, you know, you know I, I could have split apart different things that you said. Better roads are utilitarian. Bigger houses, sometimes, not necessarily. Uh, but some of those things are inevitable. There is a certain kind of output progress in quotes that, that's going to happen. I Israel, certainly 30 years ago, many people would say not from a governmental perspective, but from an infrastructure perspective, certainly a third world country. But now mm -hmm. it's somewhere, you know, closer to a first world country, if not a first world country, certainly in some ways it is. Yes. And, and I will say one of the amazing things, and I, I've spoken about this publicly before, is that 15 years ago, if you told me someone would make Aliyah because of economics, I would have looked at you like you had you know, three horns on your head. And now many people are choosing to move to Israel. And some of it is not just Israel's economy has improved, but, but orthodox economics in the United States is becoming unaffordable. It's really, it's a train wreck uh, that's coming. And so many people have said, you know, why, why, should, I, uh, why should I kill myself here? Um, maybe I'll live with a little less in Israel, but everybody else around me will also. So I don't need to live. I don't need to be on this treadmill in this rat race here because it's much better there. I, I hope that Israel doesn't take all the excesses of the United States. Some of it, I think, is coming. Some of it comes because Israel has become more capitalist in many ways, including some of the really bad things about economic inequality. Um, I true. think it's still far better than the United States. All economic progress, to some extent, is going to have positives and negatives. Um, I, I think there's a, certainly a lot positive. There's no question about that. The question is, is it possible to, to avoid some of the negative things that come along with it? Certainly the issue of tuition here is so much easier. I talk to my siblings who live in the United States and talking about the difference in tuition that I have, I can say, yeah, tuition's high because it is quote unquote high, but it's nothing, nothing, nothing compared to what they're paying. I mean, it's it's a tiny fraction. So that's certainly true. In, in the United States, let's just you know pick... I'll say the average, the average or modern Orthodox family, I don't know, three, let's say four children, I would say three and a half, but I won't, we'll pick a, a round number. If you live in the New York area, even if you don't choose to send your child to one of the, a few more, much more expensive schools, just to pay tuition for four kids, let's say spread, spread out K through 12, you could easily have to earn $150,000 in that range before taxes just to pay yeshiva tuition. I'm not sure that would always be enough, but it probably gets close enough. But that, so that, that's before you spend another penny on anything, on food, on housing, uh, you know, on insurance, on transportation. You're just listing to, I think, $150,000. In Israel, I, I don't know what, I, I don't get the sense that you, you pay a little supplement for something. If you want a little bit extra, it's peanuts compared to what, what, right. what you pay here. And that includes college. The tuition at Hebrew University, I believe, for three years, if I understand correctly, I have a son who's there, is I think 30,000 shekel, something like that. And I, when I do my math, even with the shekel being more valuable, you know, $9,000, are you kidding? <laughs> right. That's not even a semester in most places in the United States. So uh, even, even in state college, that's probably about a semester in Rutgers. 
I'm blessed to be paying seven tuitions right now between elementary school, high school, yeshiva, and college, and it still doesn't add up to a single tuition of some people in the United States for whatever level it is. You know, some people, Rabbi Weider, might talk about an emphasis on materialism or an overemphasis, but others might call it an absolute necessity when it comes to education. Let's look at some of our schools. Some of the schools have advanced facilities. They're spending more and more money. It does raise tuition. But if they didn't have such high tuition, if they didn't have such very, very advanced facilities and great clubs and all sorts of other things that they offer, which are not necessities, but they add to the educational experience, what they're doing is they're making sure that some kids who otherwise might go to public school or who might go to a private school that's a non-Jewish private school, they'll come to the Jewish school because you're not sacrificing your educational experience. Obviously, the people who are more centralized in the Orthodox community will go there regardless, but there are others who might be on the border, and by having a high-quality private school education in a Jewish high school, you're giving them that opportunity. So in that sense, is that high tuition slash educational excellence a positive thing? I'm not sure I actually agree with the assessment that that's actually the impact of this high tuition, high qual- I call it high-quality experience. I, I don't want to say that there's nobody in that category, but I'd be willing, firstly, I would say looking towards the future, I think at some point we're going to start losing from families who just don't want to do it anymore. And that would be much less of a concern if our tuition were less expensive. I can think of a couple of schools, one or maybe two schools, that whose tuition is actually astronomical, even compared to the typical, let's say, Bergen County yeshiva, where there are families where that is the case. And, and ironically, those are the schools that I'm most preoccupied of, where the kids have to get into the top-notch colleges, as I like to say, so they can get the top-notch positions because they get the best connections, so they can repeat the entire cycle again, so they can put <laughs> their kids through the ringer by sending them to those schools, ever more expensive, so they can get the... Yeah, it's insanity, actually. I see the problem. Um, but I don't know. So it's possible that on the margins, there are a few people like that who might send to an elite private school as opposed to, you know, this yeshiva didn't have the experience. I doubt that the numbers are meaningful enough. And, and they might actually be canceled out on the other end of people who might come from, you know, the conservative movement, you know, who are simply not willing to pay that amount of money because they're willing to send to, pub- to public school. But now if the tuition were less, then they would be willing to actually send their kids to an orthodox environment, which would be, you know, a tr- for the most part, a tremendous positive. So I, I, I doubt that that's actually going to yield you a positive number of students. It might be that you lose some and you gain some, uh, but I, I, I would doubt that. Maybe I'm wrong. But I would say that it becomes an arms race. It's not, I, when I think of the, the high schools who are not catering to that crowd. It literally becomes an arms race. Each one is competing to get the students. So we have to up the ante. You see this in camps too, right? I, I mean, I was never much of a camper, but when, when I went one month to Marasha some X number of decades ago, there was no, as far as I know, camp trip anywhere. Going to camp was your thing. Now we have the camp that goes to Israel. We have the camp that goes to Costa Rica. We have the camp that goes to China. It's literally an unending arms race. There's no, there's no end to it. And as soon as someone has figured out the newest trick, somebody else is going to have to one-up that. It, it doesn't end. And it just, it, it, it inflates the tuition. Now, in, in, I wouldn't say in defense, the reality is if you stripped away all of the frills, all of this, all of this stuff, and I think it should mostly be, all of the frills Yeshiva tuition is still going to be fundamentally unaffordable for a large part of the community because private because education is expensive. Um, the way we pay for it in 
United States generally is we pay for it over the course of a lifetime. We pay for it in our real estate taxes, maybe some income taxes, um, and we pay for it over a lifetime when your kids are and when they're not in school. But private school means that you pay it all. It's a, it's a user pay as you go. And that's not affordable for most people. In the United States, who sends their kids to private school? Wealthy people. You know, unless you're talking about Catholic schools that are that are funded, you know, from you know from another, uh, you know, from the institution rather than from the tuition of, of children going there. And when there is tuition, it's pretty inexpensive. So private schools are mostly for people who can afford to pay it. Everybody else in this country, for the most part, sends their kids to public schools, and you're paying for them, but over a lifetime, and it is partially tied because your real estate taxes and your income taxes are going to be related to your, the value of your, you know, the size of your house, the value of your house and, and the money that you make. We're basically creating a community uh, where people earn across the spectrum, but everybody has to pay a tuition that's only affordable to people on the upper end of the spectrum. And in the long term, that's just not viable anymore. So Rabbi Weider, that leads me to a sort of depressing question. You talk about an arms race. Earlier, you talked about a Cadillac school versus a Chevy school, and all these schools want to be the Cadillac school, presumably, or at least many of them do. Now you talked about the camps, each one having to up the ante over and over. This one goes to this place, so we have to go to as good or better, or kids aren't going to come to us. And I mean, I saw this myself. I used to run a yeshiva in Israel, and obviously it's quite different here. But I remember one particular moment. I was visiting a different yeshiva for whatever reason, and I saw that they had created a new facility, whatever it was. And I remember at that moment, it sort of crystallized in my mind, okay, eventually I'm going to go out of business because we don't have that kind of money. A yeshiva that can build whatever this thing is, a beautiful facility, which is now going to attract students for a couple of years. They are going to have more students, presumably because of this. Then everyone else is going to have to catch up and so on and so forth. Eventually it's a zero sum game and only the really rich institutions can ultimately survive. And that happens over and over again. How do we turn it down? How do we turn the flame down so that this arms race in whatever field, whether it's yeshiva, whether it's camps, whether it's schools, whether it's Pesach programs, whether it's anything in our lives, how do we stop the cycle? How do we get off of that never-ending treadmill and convince others to get off it as well? I'm not a magician, unfortunately. I said it was a depressing question. I know. I know. <laughs> I'm very good at pointing out problems. And it's not, you know, and even maybe the solutions, but not implementing them. Uh, that's hard. You know, it requires in the context of schools. Like I, I wondered on, on a different note, um, and not to open up that conversation, but the impact of smartphones on our kids. And, and as, from my vantage point in education, I think it's had a very deleterious impact. And I think we're first seeing it now with the cohort that first entered college just a few years ago, who were the first ones to have smartphones when they started high school. Now, whatever you think about the question generally, I think it's fair to say that schools should not let their kids have their phones during the day. Now, no school wants to do that because after all, if we don't allow it, you know that we are not gonna be the place of choice next year of kids coming here. But I've always wondered, I, I don't think, I, don't, I doubt, I haven't had, I've had a conversation with a few administrators. I don't think anybody's going to disagree with that idea. So I kind of wonder, why don't they just all get together and say, okay, look, we'll compete the way we want to compete, but we all agree this is a terrible thing. So if we all do this in unison, nobody gets, nobody has an advantage, nobody's a disadvantage. So there are some, th there, there are areas, you know, in which you could do that. And I would hope that people that different schools would get together and say, okay, we all agree we're, we're not doing this. There, there used to be something not of this kind. I think there used to be, I don't know what if the BJE still exists, but there was an understanding that there were a certain number of kids who didn't get into any of the schools. And there was an understanding that each school was going to take a couple of the kids. There's something like that. So mm -hmm. I don't understand why, you know, why that doesn't happen now either. 
Um, I think that, you know, that, that would be the way at least to accomplish some of these things. And again, you also have to deal with pushback from parents. That's, you know, what my kid needs to be, you know, I need to have 24 seven contact with my child because so if God forbid, he doesn't have his smartphone or her smartphone, what am I going to do? You know, that makes it harder. But I, I think that, so I think that maybe in some cases, institutions could solve the problem, but they do have customers, not just the kids. And that makes it complicated. Um, so I, I wish I had a good way to say, okay, everybody sit down in the room, we're all going to agree to do this. That, by the way, goes back to comments earlier about individualism. Uh, my sense, and I could be wrong, I, I may be guilty of but that 40 years ago, there was a greater sense of, of if the rabbis got up and said, not, not intruding in people's lives, but just as a community, we're going to do it this way. There was a greater sense that I, I sublimate my individual wants, needs, and, and rights for the good of the community, at least in the context of communal institutions. What I do in my own life is my business, but at least in the context of a communal institution, I, I, I do that. Uh, and now I think that seems to be harder. Everybody seems to feel that my opinion, you know, my rights, and, and I'm going to do it, and it makes it harder. And, and as I think you can see even in, in current events, if you look at what's going on with the trucker protests, 90% of the truckers in Canada are vaccinated. All the trucking organizations are condemning these people, but it only takes a few squeaky you know, wheels to disrupt the entire mechanism, right? Who feel that their perception of rights is enough to disrupt the entire society. So whether you agree or disagree with their position, that is sort of writ large in every context in the community, that a few people make a lot of noise, make it very hard to say, okay, the rights, the needs of the community override the wants and the rights of any individual. Well, Rabbi Weider, it is unfortunate that we don't have solutions we can implement right now. Nonetheless, I think that raising awareness to this issue, allowing people to think once or twice or three times before choosing to go to a Pesach program or choosing which Pesach program to attend or any of the other issues that we discussed today, that has value as well. So thank you very much for joining me. This is really, really interesting and really important. Thank you very much for having me. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com. 